continue our uh, series as we started last week on the fundamentals of the faith, uh, following Dirk's sermon on Titus 2, on sound doctrine and living a godly life. Today, uh, we'll study prayer from a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter five, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. <clears throat> this began as a lesson for my uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes group at school. Um, we'd meet each Friday morning, and I'd ask for volunteers for prayer, and I wouldn't get many. So um, I thought, we need a lesson on, on praying. So I started preparing this, and as I dug deeper into the, the text of Scripture, of course, going to, to Jesus teaching the Lord prayer and Lord's Prayer, and uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Larger Catechism, um, found that there's a, much here that even I had either never knew or forgotten. So uh, many details I'd overlooked. Uh, so seeing, uh, you know, that Jesus, what te- Jesus teaches about prayer is instructive to me, um, I thought it might be helpful for you as well. So um, no matter how long you have been praying, uh, it's always helpful to return to the, the basics and, and ensure we're, you know, aligning ourselves with, with God's will for us. So hopefully everyone can learn something this morning. Uh, let's follow along as I read from the Word of God, Matthew chapter 6. I will start at verse 5. It's found on page 811 on your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, Lord, and for your gift of prayer. Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word to teach us, to train us in righteousness, to convict and correct us, and to rebuke us, Lord, in areas where we have fallen short. Lord, teach us to pray faithfully, fervently, reverently, and in accordance with your will. And may the hope of the gospel, Lord, be grounded in your promises and the fully accomplished work of Christ and deeply in each of our hearts and minds. Amen. We start with a quote from from John Stott. Um, He says this, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Matthew Henry says something similar. He says this, It is taken for granted that all who are disciples of Christ will pray. 
you may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. So the Bible assumes that all Christians will pray. Uh, But today we find in many segments of the church and perhaps even in our own lives, prayer has taken a back seat. And when we do pray, are we praying in a way that brings the most honor and glory to God? Um, Our passage this morning, uh, Jesus has has given to us to to help us, to bring us into alignment with, with God's will for our prayer lives. So this section is a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It uh, instructs us how to pray, uh, first by giving us two errors that we have in prayer. First, we have to avoid praying as hypocrites. Second, we have to, or we need to not pray uh, with vain repetitions as the the Gentiles do. And then finally, Jesus gives us a a model for true God-exalting prayer. So let's jump right in. Uh, Starting in verse 5 and 6, we see the first error of prayer, which is hypocrisy. Uh, So what is a hypocrite? The word hypocrite itself comes from uh, the word for Greek actors who would wear different masks as they they play different roles. Uh, So a hypocrite is just an actor. They behave in a certain way externally. They put on that mask, but underneath, they, they don't match that. Their heart doesn't match that behavior. So why does a hypocrite pray? We find that in verse 5, to be seen by others. Uh, Jesus mentions two occasions that hypocrites love to pray. First, in the synagogues. Apparently, uh, there were times when uh, people from the congregation could, could pray aloud in the, in the synagogues, but um, Jesus often uses the word hypocrite to refer to the Pharisees and the scribes themselves. So, of course, they're the ones uh, officiating in the synagogues. So uh, Jesus condemns here even many of the prayers that were occurring uh, in the houses of worship of the time. Second, Hypocrites love to pray on the street corners. Uh, This may refer to the tradition that the Jews had of stopping three times a day to offer prayers to God. Uh, Some Pharisees may have decided to time their their movements so that during those times they're in a public place so everyone can see uh, them praying. Uh, So the error here that the, the hypocrites have is their motivation. Rather than coming to the Lord in humility and seeking God's face, they are performing, they're acting. They're trying to be seen and respected by men. So this is uh, important. Our our motivation for prayer matters. These uh, hypocrites seek the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So what is God's response to these hypocrites? Um, As God is, you know, apt to do with many misplaced and disordered desires, God gives them exactly what they want. The end of verse 5 says, Truly I say to you, They have received their reward. Jesus says, essentially, that the Pharisees should enjoy this reputation they have as upstanding, godly prayer warriors because that's the only reward they will receive. There is no reward in heaven for such prayers. This type of prayer is actually an insult to God when we give lip service to him and use him as a tool to impress others. So how, then, can Jesus' disciples avoid praying like a hypocrite? Verse 6 gives us the answer. But when you pray, Jesus says, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Our Heavenly Father is the only hearer or seer we should need or desire when we pray. Praying in private helps to keep our focus where it needs to be, on the Lord. Uh, Jesus says the best way to avoid having impure motives is to remove that temptation altogether. Just pray in private where no one else can see. 
So the remedy for the disease of people pleasing is to just pray in private. And Jesus indicates that this is exactly where you will find God. He says to pray to your Father who is in secret. Uh, this had to be a bit of a paradigm shift for the Jews because uh, they all knew that, of course, God dwells in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple. Uh, so it made the most sense to them to pray in the houses of worship where, where they were gathered to, to meet with the Lord. But, but Jesus says the Father is in secret. Uh, God is omnipresent. Uh, often we can find him best when we are alone in our room. And the end of verse 6 says, And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. <clears throat> this is the type of prayer that God loves, approves of, and rewards. His prayer offered to him and focused on him alone. So what does this mean for our prayer lives? First, we have to understand that Jesus does not prohibit <clears throat> excuse me, public prayer with this teaching. Indeed, Jesus' teaching through the Lord's Prayer itself leads us to conclude that prayer is a, has a place in public, especially among the gathering of the saints. Uh, prohibiting doing all good works like prayer in public would contradict Jesus' earlier teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how does that differ from what the, the Pharisees were doing? The Pharisees were looking for glory for themselves. Good works are designed to bring glory to God. The root of the issue is, do our, do our works and actions glorify God, or do they glorify self? We also see corporate prayer in the church in Acts. Uh, just as Jesus ascended into heaven after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, uh, says this, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So clearly, uh, the church was gathered to prayer throughout the, the book of Acts. So God intends prayer as uh, a public act, but it's for leading a group to the throne of grace rather than self-glorification. So when we pray, we must be aware of our motives. Uh, they may never be perfect, this side of glory, but God wants and deserves our focus during prayer. Communion with God is our purpose for prayer. So when, when that starts to be mingled with pride or self-righteousness, uh, we have a problem. Uh, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Sin is something that follows us into the presence of God. We're all fully aware of that fact, you know, every Sunday morning when we meet together for worship. Uh, if you're like me, you'll, you'll find your mind wandering to the cares of the world, to the things we need to accomplish this week, or being self-conscious of what others, others might think. Uh, no, brothers and sisters, that is not the standard. And on those occasions when we do pray in public, we must be very careful that we aren't practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them as as our confession of sin from Matthew 6, chapter 1 said today. You know, if I'm being honest and transparent with you, I confess that there are times when I pray in public that the thought of how I sound to other people is at the back of my mind. Um, I want to pray that my father, I want to pray to my father and devote my entire attention to him, but yet sin lurks at the door. So Lord, forgive me and forgive us for the filthy rags we offer and help us, Lord, all to keep you as our central desire and focus. Next, before Jesus teaches us the proper way to pray, Jesus presents 
one or more heir, one more heir, uh, praying as a Gentile. Uh, he says this in verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that what you need before you ask him. So we're told not to pray like Gentiles. What is a Gentile? Uh, usually when we hear that word uh, to refer to people, or sometimes the word pagans is used, uh, we think about irreligious or go- ungodly people, godless people. But we actually know that the nations around Israel had a number of false gods. Uh, the Gentiles were actually very religious people. Uh, we see one account of these people in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. Elijah challenged these 450 prophets of Baal to cause their god to, to bring fire upon a bull that they had slaughtered and placed on the altar. That, this comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. Verse 26 says this, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. Of course, then Elijah goes on to mock them. Uh, He says, you may have to yell louder. Maybe your God is in in the restroom. Um, So the prophets spent all day crying out the name of their God, hoping that that something would happen. They thought that repeatedly just calling the name of Baal would cause him to listen to them. You know, what's wrong with this way of praying? What exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, verse 7 says we are not to heap up empty phrases. Uh, The New American Standard Bible says uh, meaningless repetition. So Jesus here is discouraging mindless repetition in prayer. Uh, But we can also maybe heap up empty phrases by using fancy language and religious words. Uh, We might think that God will be more impressed with us uh, or hear us better if we use some kind of magic words. Uh, There's also the risk similar to the hypocrite from verses 5 and 6. Perhaps we're we're praying to to show off for others by using that flowery language or offering long-winded prayers. The problem is identified in the last half of verse 7. It says, They think that they will be heard for their many words. You know, they think, if we just pray a little bit longer, just use some more words, then God will hear me and he will answer. Or maybe God's just hard of hearing, so if I say it enough times, maybe it'll get through to him. Uh, Jesus says, no, don't be like them. Don't be like the Gentiles. Instead, Jesus tells us that our Father knows what you need before you ask him. Verse 8. So we don't pray to God to inform him of anything he doesn't already know. Uh, When we pray... It should be, should be an exercise, an expression of our whole being, right? Our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our wills uh, should, along with our words, be, be sent up to God. Uh, we pray to commune with and appeal to a loving God who wants to meet our every need and wants us to bring those needs and worries before his throne. Uh, he knows exactly what we need. Charles Spurgeon says, Christians' prayers are measured by weight and not by length. Many of the most prevailing prayers have been as short as they were strong. So how can we ensure that we are obeying Jesus' instructions here? Uh, First, we don't need to look at the clock during our prayer times. We don't need to feel bad if our prayer times only last a couple minutes. Similarly, we don't deserve an extra helping of grace if we just spend hours in prayer. 
Um, Jesus is not prescribing a minimum or maximum length for a prayer. Uh, we are commanded in other parts of Scripture, of course, to pray continually, to pray without ceasing, to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, and to continue steadfastly in prayer. What Jesus warns us against here is, is that mindless repetition, being generally mindlessness in prayer. This instruction also does not prohibit us from praying the same thing repeatedly. You know, the moral of Jesus' parable of the persistent widow is that, from Luke 18, uh, they should always pray and not give up. No, it's the using of vain and mindless and meaningless words that Jesus forbids. Uh, We should also remember um, the scripture, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So our Father is not looking for an expansive vocabulary. Instead, he's looking for sincerity. We should approach the throne of grace with confidence, yet with reverence and humility. So we should not pray as hypocrites. We should not pray as Gentiles. So how then should we pray? Jesus provides us a model in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, There are deep depths that could be mined here. Um, with each petition of the Lord's Prayer, but this morning we'll just have to hit the highlights. Uh, When Jesus tells his disciples in verse 9 to pray then like this, uh, what he's saying is that this is how to pray, not necessarily what to pray. Uh, We can pray these words specifically, uh, and we do each Lord's Day. We we share in the Lord's Prayer, but, but Jesus gives this prayer that we can pray like this. This is a model. This is an outline. Uh, The Lord's Prayer provides both order and substance to our prayers. So our prayers ought to be orderly. Um, They ought to be spiritually significant. Also note that Jesus doesn't say only pray like this. Uh, There are other patterns for prayer in the Bible, uh, but the Lord's Prayer is one of the most all-encompassing that we find, and it's good to use as a guide for our prayers. So let's dig into the Lord's Prayer. The first four words which we call the preface or the invocation of the Lord's Prayer, is our Father in heaven. Each word there is is packed with meaning and implications. Um, First, the very first word, our. Uh, Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5 of Matthew, and the pronoun that he uses to refer to people, you, is uh, the singular version of of the pronoun. So he's talking to individual Christians and individual disciples about morality, Things like anger and lust and divorce and making vows and taking vengeance and loving your enemies. Uh, Those instructions are all singular to to individual people. But in chapter 6, as his teaching moves on to prayer, the pronouns become plural. Jesus told us a few, few verses ago that, yes, prayer should be done individually and privately, but the Lord's Prayer here is designed by God to be used in community. John Onwuchekwa, in his book on prayer, says, Prayer was never meant to be merely pers- a merely personal exercise with personal benefits, but a discipline that reminds us how we're personally responsible for others. We are part of a collective, or sorry, we are part of a community of people who have the same access to God. Prayer is a collective exercise. The first two words of the prayer, our Father. When we address God as our Father, uh, that was actually quite controversial among the Jews of Jesus' day. 
Uh, the Jews were very reluctant to call God their father. Uh, but every single one of Jesus' prayers that are recorded in the, in the gospel accounts start with father, all except for one. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 18 records this. That was why the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But this is not unprecedented. Isaiah chapter 63 identifies God as the father of his people. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 16 and 17 say this, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. So God is our Father, not just because he is our Creator, but because we have a particular relationship with him. He is the Redeemer. He's our Redeemer. And God himself redeems us and adopts us as his children. All who believe in Jesus are brought into the family. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, Uh, comments on the fatherhood of God. Uh, This is a quote that stuck with many of us from the men's Thursday morning Bible study that studied this book a couple years ago, I suppose. Uh, Here's what J.I. Packer says. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. He goes on to say, if you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. We also saw from Psalm 103 in verse 13, our responsive reading from this morning. uh, It said, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Right? A father loves his children. And God loves and shows compassion to us as we come to him in prayer. So when we begin our prayers with our Father, we operate with the understanding that we have access to God through that relationship, that we are adopted children approaching our Father. We have that kind of intimate access to God. So then the whole preface, our Father in heaven, right? God is in heaven. Uh, This is not just referring to his physical location, When we say something like Joe Biden is in the White House, uh, we don't just mean that's where he is physically or where he lives and works. We mean he has the office and the power of the president of the United States. In a similar way, when we say our father in heaven, it means that our father God has the power due to his position as God, the king of kings. And so we pray to a God who is able and has the power to accomplish what we ask and what his will includes. So now we come to the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, where we make requests of God. There are six petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The first three deal with what we owe to God, and the last three focus on what God promises us. So we will move through these six petitions quickly, and then we'll take some time at the end to consider how they affect our own prayers. Uh, The first petition in Jesus' prayer is from verse 9. Hallowed be thy name, or hallowed be your name. So hallowed means treated with the highest honor and set apart as holy. So we pray in this petition that God's name would be honored. We ask that God's reputation in the world would advance, 
Uh, we pray that people would honor God as being holy. We also acknowledge that God's glory has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So we pray that, God would, that people would respond appropriately to Jesus. And this request sets the tone for the rest of the prayer. All that we ask of God flows out of this all-consuming desire to see his name be lifted up and glorified. We desire that God would show forth his glory in the world. We pray that God would be glorified in us. And we pray that others might glorify him as well. Moving on to the second petition, verse 10. Your kingdom come. God's kingdom in this age refers to the reign of Christ in the hearts and lives of of believers. And Christ, of course, is the head of the body, his church. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we acknowledge that the world we live in is corrupt. It's stained with sin and defiled. It's Satan's kingdom. So in this prayer, we long for something better, where God's rule is recognized and adored. And we also ask God to fulfill his promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk 2.14 says. This is a plea for missions and evangelism. When we say, your kingdom come, it's a prayer for the success of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. It's not just some abstract concept or some far-off idea. Uh, We should pray for God's kingdom to come in our own lives, that we would be faithful to his will and and that he would give us a passion for preaching the gospel. Uh, We should pray for God's kingdom to come in our neighbors' lives. Uh, We should pray for opportunities to show the love of Christ, to share the word of God, to provide for needs so that people might come to know Jesus We should pray that God's word and the good news of the life, death, and resurrection and reign of Christ be preached around the world to people of all nations, all tongues, all tribes, and all peoples, that they might come to faith in the Lord. And that moves us into our third petition, the last half of verse 10. Uh, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for God to reign here on earth the same way he already reigns in heaven. We pray that people would joyfully submit to God and his will because they're convinced that he is good. And we pray for God's will to be accomplished on earth, even if that means suffering, sacrifice, or even our death. The same Jesus who taught us to pray this way demonstrated it perfectly as he prayed to our Father in the garden. As he sweated blood, he was in anguish. Matthew 26 records this in verse 39. And going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The logic of verses 9 and 10 of the Lord's prayers is clear. If we glory in who God is, and if we desire his reign in all things, then we want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as I mentioned, these first three petitions were focused on God, on his name, on his kingdom, and on his will. The center of of prayer is God the Father. A little later, we'll have a chance to make requests of God for for ourselves, but uh, the prayer, our prayer, should begin with a focus on God. These first three petitions remind us about the most important things, that that, uh, when we pray, Uh, The most important things are not what we can get from God, but it's actually God himself that he offers to us. 
Pastor John Onwachekwa uh, makes the point in his book on prayer, which is clear from these first th three petitions, that God calls us to long for his presence more than his possessions. Uh, we're called to cry out to God for his name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done, not because he needs our help accomplishing these things, but because we need help desiring them. The biggest problem in our world is our self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness. You know, if we think about our own lives, how often do we find ourselves frustrated that, that God's name is disrespected? Or how often am I in anguish that God's kingdom and his purposes are disregarded? But let's turn that around. How do I feel when I am disrespected? How do I feel when circumstances get in the way of my goals and my purposes and when my will is disregarded? Right? Uh, we have some desires that are definitely upside down. Uh, Jesus challenges us as we pray to grow for, in our own desire for his, his name and his kingdom and his will. So moving into the last three petitions. Petition number four uh, from verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, with this petition, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 104, uh, gives us some insight. It says, we pray that God's free, of God's free gift, we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and enjoy his blessing with them. Jesus instructs us in this verse to ask for the things that we need. Uh, some theologians have interpreted, give us this day our daily bread, uh, to refer to maybe the communion or God's word, but I think the best interpretation is to just take Jesus' words plainly as, as, they, as he intended them. Um, we're to ask for the food we need each day. And it's important to remember God does care about everyday things. God knows exactly what we need, and we should pray about them. Uh, this is not contradictory to the first three petitions either, because God is glorified when he gives good gifts to his children. Uh, his grace to us in providing the things we need brings him glory. Um, everything belongs to God, and he freely gives to those both inside and outside his kingdom. And it is the Lord's will to be the provider for his people. We have a generous God who loves to give gifts of himself and his gifts. Also notice that we're asked to pray for daily bread. This prayer remind us, reminds us that we are dependent on God every single day. The best position for a Christian to be in is to be in constant believing dependence upon the Lord. Proverbs chapter 30 provides some insight into why we, we, why we would just ask for this day's bread. Uh, Proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. So Proverbs chapter 30 describes two dangers. Uh, first, if we're full, if we have too much, God becomes unnecessary. We think we can provide for ourselves. Uh, we think maybe we've earned our daily bread through our hard work. And this pride that we can have easily leads to a lack of gratitude. And when gratitude leaves, it's greed that comes in and takes its place. On the other hand, Proverbs 30 says if we have too little, we may be tempted to steal and bring dishonor to God. Or perhaps worse, we may be tempted to think that God doesn't care about us. So the way we handle God's gifts, food and possessions, 
can either accentuate or diminish our ability to display God's glory. Moving into the fifth petition, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So our sins here are called debts. Our sins are debts that we owe God, uh, but they are a debt too large for us to ever pay. But we have one who has paid that debt for us. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 tell us that, And you, who were dead in your, trans- in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven given us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So because of Jesus' sacrifice for, for sins and for us, we can pray for forgiveness. God's justice has been satisfied in Christ. And we have peace with God through his pardon and forgiveness. All because of what God has done, not because of our own performance. And just as we were instructed to pray daily for daily bread, we should also pray daily for forgiveness. In doing so, we remind ourselves of our constant failings, and we can confess those to the Lord. Uh, We do not come to the Lord for fresh justification, because that has been accomplished. But sin does harden our hearts, and it distances us from God. And so we confess and we pray for forgiveness daily, in order that we might have renewed fellowship with God. Each day we neglect to confess our sins is a day we're tempted to think that God is okay with us because of our performance. That, of course, is not true and does not bring honor to God. But when we ask for forgiveness each day, we, we are reminded that God is eager and eager to forgive. Uh, our Thursday morning uh, group has been studying Dane Ortland's book called Gentle and Lowly. Um, This week we read chapter 7, which is titled, What Our Sins Evoke. We all probably know that our sins make us unworthy, unclean, and unable to enter the presence of God. Uh, We know that sin evokes God's wrath and judgment. Uh, But Dane Ortland made the point this week that God does not respond with wrath toward his people. I had trouble finding just one quote to share uh, from this chapter because it's filled with reassurance and insight into God's character. But here's, here's one taste. Uh, Ortland writes, if you are a part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion, and his pity. He takes part with you. That is, he's on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. So God delights when we confess our sins, when we repent, and when we seek forgiveness. He is the father of the prodigal son, and he welcomes us back with open arms. And again, the pronouns here are plural. We ask him to forgive us, our debts, our sins. When we confess our sin and receive assurance of forgiveness as part of our worship service each week, we remind ourselves that we're all sinners in need of God's forgiveness. So then, because of God's example of forgiveness toward us and our gratitude for it, uh, we can be gracious toward others who sin against us. You know, jealousy and strife and competition are driven away as we confess our sins together each Sunday. And a prayerful community that comes humbly before the Lord, confessing their sins, uh, is able to be a peaceful community. And we see, um, skipping ahead, that the forgiveness of others is not an optional part of of the Christian life. 
or merely encouraged. It is required by the Lord Jesus. Verses 14 and 15 tell us, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So forgiveness is required for those of you, those of us who have been forgiven. John Stott comments on this fact. Once your eyes, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own offenses. So our willingness to readily forgive others is a fruit of having been forgiven by God. And if we're unwilling to forgive others, it shows that we do not have a proper understanding of our own sin and the enormity of the debt that has been forgiven us. When we have been shown such great mercy by God, it should be our joy to forgive others as God forgives us. And finally, the sixth petition, uh, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the fifth petition, we prayed for forgiveness for previous sin. And in the sixth petition, uh, we pray for protection from future sin. We know that God does not tempt us, of course. Our own hearts uh, lead us into sin, and Satan is still at work in the world. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 106, helps clarify what it is that we ask. In the sixth petition, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. So there are two errors that we can fall into when we undergo temptation. First, we might assume that we have the power in ourselves to resist temptation. While the Holy Spirit frees us from the power of sin, that freedom is not in ourselves. It comes as we walk in the Spirit and war against the flesh in dependence upon God in prayer. Thinking we have that power to avoid or overcome temptation in ourselves is doomed to failure. Second, we can also assume that overcoming temptation is hopeless and that we maybe will always succumb to this temptation. But that, brothers and sisters, is also not true. God is faithful. He knows what we are able to bear, and he provides a way out. If we rely on him, he gives us the strength to endure temptation and to not give in. So with this petition also, we pray daily for God's protection from temptation, and we pray for deliverance from evil. Uh, We can't deliver ourselves. That deliverance must be accomplished by another. Uh, Pastor Gordon Ketty, in his devotional book titled Prayers of the Bible, makes this point. He says this, salvation is more than dodging a few bullets along life's way and escaping deserved consequences of our sin. We are delivered from evil, but we are also delivered to Christ. And this deliverance to Christ includes our continued obedience. So in the earliest manuscripts and in the English Standard Version we read today, the Lord's Prayer ends here. Uh, Later texts add the conclusion, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Uh, This conclusion was in use among Jews from ancient times, and there's no disputing that it it is aligned and biblically true. And so it's essentially a brief restatement of the first three petitions of the prayer. So after praying to our Father in heaven, we pray for his presence, we pray for his provision, we can conclude with praise, ascribing all glory to God forever. So to wrap up, uh, a few takeaways that I have learned 
um, which might be helpful and useful to you. Um, first, prayer should be used by each of us to deepen our communion with God. Uh, every Christian can pray and call on the name of the Lord, and our Father should be the sole focus of every one of our prayers. Um, God uses prayer in the lives of believers to align our wills to God's will and to return our focus to him and to ease our burdens. Um, so Christians need to pray just as much as we need to breathe. It's, it's essential. Second, when we pray, our prayers should be orderly. Uh, the Lord's prayer provides an outline and a model. Uh, we begin by remembering who we pray to. We pray to our Father. Uh, we pray for God's presence and his purposes, his name, his kingdom, his will first. Then we present our requests to God for provision, for pardon, for protection. And we can end our prayers with praise of our Father God. Uh, we should be mindful about the things we pray. Uh, we should not be casual about our prayers. That doesn't mean that prayer can't be spontaneous or straight from the heart, uh, but we need to make sure our priority in prayer is praying for God's will to be done. And the more we pray that, the more our own spirits and our own wills are transformed to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Finally, Jesus taught that prayer is a community activity. Prayer is not just between me and God. When we pray, hallowed be thy name and thy kingdom come, we turn our attention to the world. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our friends and our family and, yes, even our enemies. Our worship service includes prayers of confession of sin, prayers of adoration, prayers of assurance of pardon, prayers for supplication and thanksgiving. Uh, we pray before and after the sermon each week. Uh, we pray together as a local church because God designed prayer that way. Uh, we need the prayers of the saints. And I want to thank each one of you who has prayed for me this week as I have prepared to preach. But thank you even more for uh, those of you who pray for, for me and for others on any given week. Um, you know, I've only made one, of, one or two of the Wednesday night Bible study meetings before uh, football practice got in the way, or I let it get in the way. Um, my study this week has shown me that I need to make time to attend. Um, God does mighty works when Christians gather to pray, so perhaps uh, you might attend as well if you haven't already. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are our Father, that you have adopted us as your children, that we are co-heirs with Christ. Lord, we want your name to be honored, to be revered, and to be glorified, even here on earth. So we pray that, Lord, your kingdom would come. Lord, help your church as your body to do the works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. And, Lord, in all things, your will let your will be done. Father, you give good gifts to your children, so we ask that you give us exactly what we need, Lord. Uh, provide us with the food, the shelter, the jobs, the health that we need, and make us generous to those in need, knowing, Lord, that everything belongs to you. Father, we pray for forgiveness, which you have lavished upon us and demonstrated to us in Christ. Lord, give us grace to forgive those who have sinned against us. Lord, protect each one of us this week. Father, strengthen us in temptation, deliver us from evil into your loving arms. Father, everything belongs to you, and we are yours. Lord, use us to advance your kingdom on earth as we wait in the hope of our coming Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.